This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, and along with me on this journey of revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, I want a whole lot more than the boy next door. I want hell on wheels. Listeners, we have a special treat for you. This episode kicks off our back-to-back-to-school miniseries. Most of the movies we'll be discussing deal with returning to school. Summer is almost over, so we wanted to present two movies that touch on that subject. The first movie we'll be discussing, with spoilers aplenty, is the 1982 musical Grease 2, starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Maxwell Caulfield. Directed by Patricia Birch, this movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 55 minutes, celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Woohoo! 40 years of Grease 2. Amazing. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Many familiar faces from the smash hit Grease return to the campus, and the new ones are equally memorable in this happy tribute to straight skirts, chick chasing, and young love. It's 1961, two years after the original Grease gang graduated from Rydell High, and there's a new crop of seniors. The Pink Ladies and the T-Birds are still the epitome of cool, except that over the summer, something's happened to Stephanie, Michelle Pfeiffer, the sorority leader. She feels she's outgrown Johnny, Adrian's man, the head T-Bird, and is looking for a new love. One who's even more cool, and whose bike is even hotter. Meanwhile, newcomer Michael, Maxwell Caulfield, is smitten with Stephanie, who won't even notice him. The conflict is on, and the Rydell High fun takes off to new heights. Grease 2. The music and feeling go on forever. All right, so that was What's on the Box, Grease 2. Jason, how are we doing? We're doing good, now that I felt my my inner Casey Kasem kind of coming on there at the end of the... What's yeah. on the box segment? I don't know. I, I like just at the very, very end. I was like, wow, really getting into this radio voice thing. But, uh, I'm pumped, man. I am. I'm all greased up, ready to slide into some grease too. Grease dose. Woo. This was a fun watch. And I actually do. I genuinely do mean that it was fun. Let's just get into it. Okay. If you're ready, how are, how are you doing, Bill? I'm doing good. I'm excited to do this episode just to kind of see what the feeling is there on Grease 2. All right. Let's start with our earliest memories. And uh, Jason, go ahead. What are your earliest memories of Grease 2? All right. I'll start us off. If I, there's my Casey Kasem coming out again. I don't know what's going on. 
If I step into the Wayback Machine, I might see my younger self watching this film with a confused look on my face, meaning a confused look on my past face and present face at the same time. But I probably only saw it once all the way through, and that's about it. Probably catching different parts on cable afterward, but I'm not even sure about that. Otherwise, I have images stored somewhere in my mind, but they are mostly of Michelle Pfeiffer in a leather jacket, of course, and that makes complete sense. I had absolutely no recollection of the plot or characters or of any of the songs or choreographed musical production numbers whatsoever. I'll say this, however, that having listened to other movie podcasts over the past few years and recently, I am aware of the cult following and fandom that this movie has, and I respect that. It's a real thing. As you well know, I'm sure you'll talk about it. So I was looking forward to seeing this again, or essentially for the first time, remaining open to the experience and possibly seeing what so many people out there may still have a nostalgic attachment to. So I was looking forward to having some fun with this. And I did. How about you, Bill Bad? What are your earliest memories of Grease 2? For me, for Grease 2, I certainly caught this on HBO one afternoon. I remember seeing Grease for the first time over at my friend Robert Fleur's house. And although it was a musical, I did enjoy it, though I didn't quite get the overall storylines or catch uh, some of the racy lyrics in the song. I even own the Broadway soundtrack of Grease on record. So I was looking forward to seeing this movie. I remember enjoying the opening number of Back to School Again um, and remembering the reproduction song. Where does the pollen go? Also, Who's That Guy and the Girl for All Seasons that they played during the talent show. But none of the songs popped like what we heard from Greece. I like that it was a role reversal of the first one, where the square boy needs to become the cool guy for the girl. But unfortunately, when it was all said and done, I was certainly disappointed. And we'll get into why that was. So that was some of my earliest memories of Greece too. Appreciate you sharing that, Bill Bant. Now, there's someone else in your household that's a big fan of Grease, too. Who who might that be, Bill? Oh, my wife is a huge, huge, huge fan of this film. Has been begging us to do this forever. And, you know, when I had to sit down and watch it for the podcast, it was under the stipulation of you cannot sing along and you cannot right. you, repeat you the dialogue. It with her for the yes. podcast. Yeah, yes. and I told her she had to be quiet because I had to take notes. But it was hilarious because I think during the second or third song, she just shouts out, I'm singing in my head, you know. And I'm like, that's great. Just keep it there. I just need to hear what's going on. But it was great, too, because it was a resource. And I, if I missed a line, I would just turn to her. I'm like, what did he say? What did she say? And she would just yeah. know it verbatim. So she definitely grew up loving this movie. She wanted to be Stephanie. And I get that. And I understand she was probably the perfect age for this character to be kind of her role model growing up. I do get it watching it because in a way she is kind of the highlight of the film, how she is in it. We'll get into that later. Yeah. Yeah. So we're basically watching this so I don't have to sleep on the couch or doing this podcast when I sleep on the couch. So I would say, yes, that Hillary Bant is the inspiration behind us covering this film a little bit earlier than we otherwise might have. And that's all good. It's all gravy. It's appropriate. It's the anniversary. And also we get to pay homage a little bit to Olivia Newton-John, who unfortunately has passed. And uh, R.I.P. Olivia Newton-John, one of the greats yes, uh, from the original Grease movie musical. And this is our first musical. 
Yeah, right? Yeah, so there's, here's a genre we haven't touched on yet. So here we go. So that's a good thing, too. So uh, are we ready to get into some initial thoughts? Yes, let us. All right. So I'd like to talk about the main players. You know, our initial thoughts regarding a couple of the stars of this film, or maybe a, a filmmaker or two. And, of course, we have to begin with the indelible, the beautiful, the exquisite Michelle Pfeiffer, who plays the lead role of Stephanie Zanoni, the pink lady, or one of the pink ladies, the, the leader of the pink ladies. She had quite the 1980s. This is regarded as her first starring role in a feature film. Uh, she was in a project called The Hollywood Knights, spelled K-N-I-G-H-T-S, in 1980, playing the role of Susie Q. She had, I guess, a, a few episodes of Fantasy Island from 78 to 81. What else do we have here? We, Of course, she has this film, Grease 2. This is from 1982. Then the role of Elvira in 1983's Scarface. That is a memorable role and a memorable movie. She was in a film called Into the Night in 85. Lady Hawk from 1985. The Witches of Eastwick in 87. Amazon Women on the Moon, also in 87. Married to the Mob in 88. Tequila Sunrise in 88. Dangerous Liaisons in 88. Man, she had quite a 1988. And then The Fabulous Baker Boys in 1989. Quite a run for Michelle Pfeiffer. Other notable film appearances, Frankie and Johnny, Batman Returns, The Age of Innocence, Dangerous Minds, What Lies Beneath, Hairspray, Stardust, and most recently she is known for playing Janet Van Dyne, a.k.a. the original Wasp in Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, we know Michelle Pfeiffer is an excellent actress and one of the all-time great beauties in American cinema. Now, this is funny, Bill Band. I pulled this from IMDb. I don't know if it's funny, but it's kind of interesting. Let me read this real quick. There was a study done of the faces of beautiful women quantifying the ratio of the width of the mouth to the width of the nose, attempting to find the perfect proportions for the perfect face of feminine beauty. The movie star with the most perfect proportions for feminine facial beauty based on this measure turns out to be Michelle Pfeiffer. Right? Well, you get it. You look at her and especially on camera, she's quite stunning. Did you know that she was married to Peter Horton from 1981 to 1988? Yes, I did. I, I didn't know that. I'm not sure why Peter Horton just keeps coming up. On this podcast. Oh, I know. <laughs> from, oh, yeah. Peter Horton from Children of the Corn and Side Out. Six Degrees of Peter Horton on our podcast. Uh, we all know that she was with uh, Fisher Stevens for a few years. And she's been married to David E. Kelly, creator of much-loved uh, television shows since 1993. Uh, moving on to Maxwell Caulfield, who plays Michael Carrington. I can also say the beautiful... Michael Caulfield. He's very handsome. Yeah, yeah. Pretty guy. Pretty dude. Uh, 1980, he was on the TV series Ryan's Hope. He played the role of punk. He was uncredited as the role of punk in four different episodes of that show. He was in a lot of TV movies after Grease 2. Uh, he was on the TV series Dynasty from 85 to 86. He was in a handful, uh, nine episodes of that show. Other notables, not a whole lot. So I'm not going to bother with his filmography here. But yeah, he'd done numerous TV movies, episodes and soap operas. He was in an episode of Beverly Hills 90210 playing the role of Jason. And then he appeared as the character, well, he's credited as Man in Bathrobe in the film Calendar Girl, which also stars Jason Priestley, of course, who was in 
Beverly Hills 90210. And then, yes, he played the role of British agent in The Man Who Knew Too Little. That's Bill Murray film from 1997. So that's all I'm going to say about him at the moment. And then just moving on to our director, uh, Patricia Wait, Jason, Burke. Jason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You've skipped Empire Records. Oh, I know. I Hey, man. Sorry. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a big one. Because that's probably the only other thing people know him from. And that's a pretty cool classic film. It is. Yep, you're right. You're right. I appreciate you shouting that out, man. No Thanks problem. For, Sorry, uh, didn't interrupt. No, 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 it's good. That's it. That absolutely. I totally glossed over it. So our director of Grease 2 is Patricia Birch. Now, if you look at her IMDb, she has three times as many credits as a choreographer. Uh, she was the choreographer for the original Grease and then this Grease 2. 38 episodes of SNL, Saturday Night Live, and 11 episodes of the show Boardwalk Empire. How about that? Yeah, she had done, as a director, a couple of uh, music videos for Cindy Lauper in the early 80s. Patricia Birch, director and choreographer extraordinaire. So some initial thoughts about this movie. Bill Bant, just like yourself, I felt like we were off to a pretty good start. I loved the opening number, Back to School. I thought it was solid. I thought it was good choreography. I thought the song wasn't very catchy, but it's a proper musical introduction of our characters. And it was just fun. I thought it was great. Hey, here's a a, a thought. Worst way to be introduced in high school is as a straight A exchange student. Now, the ladies might find you interesting, but being labeled as an outsider and a nerd that's a tough look, especially in high school. Oh, yeah. And I am speaking of Michael Carrington, the character played by Maxwell Caulfield. Tough way to be introduced. Uh, but speaking of uh, tough looks, the track field scene near the beginning of the film, we get uh, Leo Balmudo, a.k.a. Craterface from the original Grease. He shows up at the Cycle Lords. The biker game just decides to show up on campus here at oh, yeah. the high school campus. That's what happens. You know, this is 1961. Mm-hmm. It happens all, happened all the time. I have no idea. I just think it's funny. The T-Birds, they put on their leather jackets over their gym uniforms. It's just a fantastic look. I just wanted to give that a shout out. It's just that look is priceless. The leather jackets over the gym uniforms as they go to approach Belmudo and the Cycle Lords and have a little conversation, which they get the short end of. Was the bowling alley a huge high school hangout for you? I get it. Like that's a place to go for kids, you know, maybe to congregate, you know, you're underage, you're not going to bars, you're not going to clubs unless you have a fake ID. This was in my complaint department and okay. my wife and I sure. kind of argued throughout the film <laughs> about the bowling alley scene. I don't think the T-Birds would hang out. They might hang out outside the bowling alley. They're not in the bowling alley bowling if they're the T-Birds. No. I just wanted to confirm. I just, yeah. Initial thought. I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, bowling alley, high school hangout. Who knew? Here's an initial thought. I love that the poor man's Sean Astin is in this film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Leaf Garrett is the actor who plays Davy Jaworski, one of the T-Birds. He's the uh, the one that is a bit shorter in stature of the four main T-Birds in this movie. <laughs> Every time he shows up on screen, I'm like, hey, Sean Astin, cool. Hey, Sean Astin. <laughs> as soon as oh, you yeah. said it, I knew what you are talking about. Hilarious. Poor bastard uh, gets relegated to the sidecar of the motorcycle in this movie the whole time. I felt bad for him. <laughs> I thought he was great. The actor's name is Leaf Green. The character's name was Jaworski, but he does look a little bit like Sean Astin. Anyway, let's get one thing straight, Bill Bant, from the get. This is not a good movie. Uh-uh. Here's a couple reasons, in my opinion, my humble opinion. One, the plot is overly simplistic. It's really just about status, uh, being one of the cool kids and getting the girl or the guy. That's about it. 
Here's another big reason. All of the music is plain awful. The songs are poorly written and superficial and basic and uncomfortable at times and unnatural. The music does not flow with the movement of the story. The songs are not intrinsic to the arc for the most part. I think there's one or two you might say actually kind of flows with the storyline somewhat. But the songs are not catchy or memorable. This is why I was hoping Hillary Bant would be awake for this podcast so you could just yank her into the screen, have her put on the headphones for a moment, and I'd be like, how do you remember any of these songs? Bill Bant, I've watched this movie twice today. I could not sing any of the songs for you right now. I've watched the movie twice today. So I'm saying here that the songs are a problem. They're a huge problem, especially after Grease, after the first movie. And it's too bad because I actually think the performances outside of the music, the writing of the music being a problem, the performance is pretty solid. The movie has a really fun vibe. I think it looks great. The choreography is great. There's a real camaraderie within the T-Birds, within the Pink Ladies, and the banter between them can be fun and witty at times. I think the writing is pretty good. It's okay, at least, outside of the music. And here's my hot take. Honestly, I think Adrian Zmed, the actor that plays Johnny Nogarelli, who is the leader of the T-Birds in this film, I think he's a standout, man. I hope that guy gets enough love out there from the fans of this movie. You know, he played actually the lead role of Danny Zuko in the theatrical run of Grease, reprised that role in the 90s. Uh, the guy knows how to exist in the world. I, I just think he's great in this world of Grease. I think some things to definitely like about this movie, and the other thing I would like to tell Hillary is that despite the fact that I don't think it's a good movie and I think the music is god-awful, I kind of liked some of it. <laughs> I just have okay. to admit that. I thought okay. that was kind of fun. All right. Enough for me. What are your initial thoughts, Bill Bant? Okay. So some of it I might be repeating what you said, just word it differently. So for me watching this, I think the movie would have been better if the title of the film was not Grease 2. If it was just an ordinary movie, an ordinary high school movie about a boy going to great lengths to impress the most popular girl in school and win her over. Sure. I think because it had that title, your expectations were super high. It disappoints. Agreed. Like you, most of the songs were literally making my eyes roll because none of us seemed to fit. Wait, why are you breaking out the song? And yes, that's a musical. That kind of happens. But usually it kind of flows into the film. This, it just seemed like, oh, it's been five minutes. Let's break into a song. And they all just seemed forced into the story. I was literally embarrassed for the actors. They must have known doing these, that these songs weren't going to work. They must have known. So I felt really bad about that. There's maybe two songs I liked. The rest of them, I was just like, oh my God, these are terrible. Speaking of the actors, I think they unfortunately pale in comparison to the original cast. But what was weird is if I had seen this group of actors perform the original Grease on stage, I would have enjoyed them there, if that makes sense. I would have rather have seen them on stage perform Grease than watch them do Grease too. I understand what you're saying. You know, if you're going to do a musical, make sure you have actors that can sing outside of who you mentioned, Adrian Zemed, who mm -hmm. I thought was really the only one that could sing. Everyone else was not that good. And that's not good when probably 60% of the movie is singing. It's a musical. Because <laughs> there was that one song that uh, Maxwell did, Charade. And oh, boy. I didn't even realize that the title of the song was Charade. I didn't even know that's the word he was singing. I was like, what is he singing? <laughs> oh, Charade. That was yeah. awful. 
I really did like Michelle Pfeiffer's character, Stephanie. I mm-hmm. like that she wasn't a bitch. She was the popular girl, but she kind of had a heart of gold. I mean, there's the opening scene when the T-Birds are going to beat the crap out of Michael, and she kind of right. steps in. And even though Michael was attracted to her and asked her out, she was honest about why she didn't want to date him. It was just basically, hey, you're just not my type. That's it. She wasn't mean about it. She was just honest. Like, hey, you're not my type. Yeah. Hey, you're allowed to have a reject someone because they're not. You don't have to date someone just because they ask you out. But at least she was honest about why she didn't. So I thought that was kind of cool. And then the fact that she was looking for her independence and realized there's more to life than being a pink lady. I thought that was good. I mean, I didn't believe for a second that she dated Nugarelli. Nugarelli. Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they went out on a first date. It didn't last that long. So that wasn't believable for me. And then my big issue with the movie was the T-Birds themselves. I didn't believe for a minute that those guys ran the school. Mm. I mean, the original cast, they were a little goofy too, but I think if there was a fight, I'm not fighting the original T-Birds. These guys, if I got in a fight, I think I got a chance. Interesting. Okay. And then we're two because you only have four and they're all going to graduate. So I'm like, is this the end of the T-Birds? Right. Yeah. You know, you see the cycle Lords, there's like 50 of them. So they're replenishing the group. There's a T-Birds like, it's just four guys? You're not initiating someone in? How does this work? So I I thought that was kind of strange. We know from the first one, the T-Birds have been there. So they must recruit and get new T-Birds. So I I thought that was kind of weird. I just, I didn't find the T-Birds tough enough to be who they pretend they were. Besides the fact they walked around and smoked. Mm -hmm. Okay, you smoke and drive motorcycles. That's how you run the school. Come on. They were kind of like T-Birds light. Very T-Bird light. That's my initial thoughts of Korea. I, that's great, man. So great. Cracks me up. I agree. Especially like just on the point of the T-Birds, I don't think they quite had the presence as the original T-Birds did from Greece 1, and they lack the numbers. You would think that they would have had extras filling out the background as if their group was larger than just four. They're really quite isolated as a group of four throughout the film. You're just like, this is it? That's all they got? Right. And I get it as a writer, more people, more lines. The movie's already pushing two hours long, but there's other things you could have cut out to maybe add some T-Birds in it. Yeah. And you don't, they don't have to necessarily have lines either. Right. You can, they can just, they fill out the background. They come in for a couple of production numbers, a couple of musical numbers, just to be dancers in the background with leather jackets on that say T-Birds on the back. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And if they did have lines, they'd be under five players. I mean, they just have a line here or there. But I agree with you. You know, strength in numbers. They're not very imposing as a gang. (laughs) No, not at all. But I think I I loved your breakdown of Michelle Pfeiffer's character. As Stephanie Zanoni, she had strength and independence. I'm glad that you brought that up. I thought she did in the fact that she wasn't condescending to Michael or putting him down or establishing some sort of like class separation, like she was better than him because she was the leader of the Pink Ladies and he wasn't a T-bird, so he wasn't good enough for her. It wasn't like that. She was just trying to find her own way. She knew what she wanted and it wasn't him in the moment. She wanted a cool rider. Yeah. So thanks for that. Yeah, some good initial thoughts. Are we ready to move into some favorite scenes and moments? Hey, let's take a quick break to hear from our friends over at Time Pop, the time travel movie podcast. This is Time Pop, a podcast about time travel movies. 
Each episode, we take a deep dive into a time travel film and talk about all the insanity and madness that happens when you travel through time. Tell our new fans some of the episodes they could listen to right now. Okay. The Adjustment Bureau. See you yesterday. The Time Machine. Live, Die, Repeat. Primer. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Avengers With Endgame. many more time travel movies in our future. Join me, Ari. Scott. And Dez. For Time Pop. Now back to our show. Yes, favorite scenes of moments in Greece too. Jason, what do you have? I'm going to start with my one favorite scene, which is actually a short scene, but I don't know, it just kind of worked for me. And this happens when, speaking of the bowling alley, the big hangout in this movie, I guess it's after the musical number, which is, uh, was it We're Going to Score Tonight? Is that yeah, the I name of the so. song? I need the track listing here in front of me, which I do not have. But there's a ridiculous musical number, which is fun to watch. The music is terrible. The lyrics are terrible. Are they literally singing about scoring tonight? Like, have, are we all going to have sex tonight? Or we're all going to win this bowling game tonight? I get that it's supposed to be a metaphor. Most of the music in this, this movie is horny, Bill. This whole movie is horny. It's all about sex. Most of oh, it. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of that in Greece that we missed as kids sure, and then when you sure, watch it older. Absolutely. So I get Let's that. make no mistake. That's part of it, right? And that's okay. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just saying, but it's just not at a little all more than this. Yeah. Thank you. I love the choreography. It's a big production. I mean, you've got a lot of dancers. It's all, you know, everybody's in sync and looking. It looked like they were having fun, at least, making the movie. Whether or not they were, I'm not sure, but it seemed like they were having fun. But the song is so ridiculous and it ends. And the idea is here, at least in the beginning of the movie, actually throughout three quarters of the movie, Johnny is trying to get back with Stephanie because we are to understand that Johnny and Stephanie were together and then they broke up during the summer or that Stephanie broke up with Johnny, which is a big deal. Yes. That's a big blow to the ego of Johnny. Johnny Nogarelli, leader of the T-Birds. So it's now the beginning of the new school year, their senior year, and she's single and he is brokenhearted and trying not to show it and still pining for her. And after this ridiculous musical number in the bowling alley, they're all about to leave. Johnny is pretending as if he's moving on and he's going to get together with one of the other pink ladies who is Paulette and kisses Paulette, but then says that she's average at best, and moves on to Stephanie, who's having none of it. She's not having it. Uh-uh. I'm not your trophy. And he's like, oh, man, she's for real. She really broke up with me. Like, she's serious? Are you kidding me? And then she's going to, she's like, you know what? I don't need to kiss you. I could kiss the next guy that walks in here. And who, of course, is that but Michael, the new kid in town, the exchange student from England, who happens to be... The cousin of Sandy, yeah, Olivia Newton-John from the first films. And even though she was Australian, I guess he's her cousin from England. Is that right? Oh, yeah. All right. Just clarifying. Thank you. <laughs> it all makes sense. So she kisses him and Michael is stunned. Everybody leaves. Michael doesn't get to bowl. Wah, wah. And Michael walks out of the bowling alley and is now partnered up with Dolores, who happens to be the younger sister of Paulette, one of the pink ladies. And the pink ladies, especially Paulette, is always telling the younger Dolores to get out of here, get out of here, go to bed, go home. 
because she's this younger girl who's kind of a straggler and she's wanting to be a pink lady. So I actually like the scene. I like the scene that happens right here when Michael and the young Dolores are walking out of the bowling alley because they bond over the fact that they are two people on the outside looking in. Michael wants to be one of the T-Birds or is trying to find out how to be one of the cool kids in order to catch the attention of Stephanie, whom he's falling for. And Dolores, the young Dolores, wants eventually to be recognized by the pink ladies and wants to become one of the pink ladies. And she's trying to do her best by hanging around them. And they're just wanting to be cool. And right now, they're not. Michael realizes that from Dolores, actually, that he needs to get a cycle. He's got to get a bike. He's got to get a motorcycle. And how is he going to do that? Uh, So he's got to figure that out. And they kind of walk, they kind of stroll through the parking lot and find something in common. I think, to be honest, Maxwell Caulfield, who plays Michael, I think he's the most genuine in the scene. He's very sweet to the young Dolores, whom I believe is probably what she's supposed to be like a freshman in the high in high school. Yeah, at first I wasn't sure, but I was like, I think she's going to school there, so she must be a freshman. Yeah, so it's kind of bittersweet. He's really sweet to her, and here's this freshman girl who now it's like in the middle of the night after the bowling alley, I'm assuming, is just about to close or is closing, and he offers to walk her home. It's just kind of sweet. So, uh, and also I wanted to uh, give a shout out to, I think it's Pamela Eldon. She's credited as Pamela Seagal, but she plays Dolores. I'm a big fan of her, that actress who, uh, she had a great role in Californication and she's on a lot of other things since, but very, very young in this movie. Shout out to that actress, but that's my first favorite scene. How about you? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good scene now that you've talked about it. And it probably is one of Maxwell's probably better acting scenes in that. Th- I think it's that's one of the what times he really kind of gets to act. Yeah. And it is good too, because you kind of get some uh, exposition from Dolores about how Michael can get his way in without her knowing that she's giving him the information. So I thought that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. We learned a little bit like, okay, this is how the, the second act of the film is going to kick in is... Michael now knows what he needs to do to get to the next step to hopefully date Stephanie. Right. So good call. Um, So for me, favorite scene, it's the opening number. I think it's the only song that stands out to me. The back to school again. I mean, ever since I've heard that song every year when school starts, that song pops in my head. Even my kids just started school a couple of weeks ago and that song pops in my head. It's about a seven minute long scene. And what I like about it is it introduces all your characters. We meet the T-Birds, we meet the Pink Ladies, we meet Michael, uh, we meet some of the secondary characters, Frenchie from the first one, Eugene from the first one, the principal from the first one, the coach pops in from the first one. We meet the cheerleading twins um, that are new. We meet the Preptones. Preptones, yes, who are the main rivals to the T-Birds to win the talent show. So everyone kind of gets thrown in there really quick. Okay, here's everybody. I thought the song was really catching. It's like, okay, this movie actually is starting off good. Okay, start off with a catchy song. We're meeting everybody. I'm all excited. Everything falls flat after that. But there is a caveat to this. I think what would have actually made the scene better is if the T-Birds and the Pink Ladies did not dance or sing in this number. Mm. Because it would show their independence over the school. Like they rule over the school. Like everyone else is joining in on this big number. And they're just kind of walking through it. It's no big deal to them. I kind of preface it with that because I was kind of like, you see Michelle Pfeiffer and she's kind of bopping in. She meets the rest of the pink ladies and then they do that kind of dance thing. And I was like, ooh, no, 
no, I didn't want that. And then even the T-Birds kind of dancing with everyone else. I was like, uh, no, I don't want that either. Right. I actually thought it was the most catchy song of the movie. And I liked that you really got introduced to everyone in that first seven minutes. And you kind of know, okay, here's all the people that we're going to touch on throughout the movie. And let's get it going. So I thought it was a really good start. And then the rest of the movie just falls off a cliff. <laughs> good breakdown. I totally agree. I thought it was off to a great start. And I should have put this as a favorite scene because I agree. I was like, wait a minute. I'm liking this this opening. Is this a, this movie pretty decent? Is the gossip wrong on this? Is the word of mouth wrong on this movie? So totally agree. I think that's a good point. That would have been kind of cool if the T-Birds and Pink Ladies kind of come in maybe towards the end or at the very end of the musical number because the musical number unto itself kind of establishes the setting. We, you, like you said, we bring in some old familiar faces from the original film and the tone is established. Credits are rolling and then we get the two groups come in at the end. That would have been kind of cool to ex- either establish their dominance or that they're a bit separate in a different kind of class, in right. a cl- different clique. They, they just have a certain attitude about them or they're respected as being the cool kids. Yeah, if, if the song kind of ends and then because they hear the motorcycles coming in in the car and they all kind of come in together and it's like, oh, all right, here's, right. here's the like, T-Birds. I could see... Sorry, sorry, keep going. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I could see a shot with all the kids grouped together, like this big production number. You have a number of students singing and dancing all synchronized and looks great. And then at the end of the number, they kind of, they split down the middle, like it's the parting of the seas making way for the two groups of the T-Birds and the Pink Ladies coming down through the middle, either hand in hand or arm in arm, because a couple of them are dating one another. And that's how they operate. T-Birds date Pink Ladies, Pink Ladies only go for the T-Birds and that's established then there. It would have been a cool way to handle that situation. But I love the way that they put a button on it too at the end of this number at the very end where it's just kind of perfect. You get, I was going to touch on this. I like the kind of the cool uh, camaraderie within the T-Birds where you have Johnny Nagarelli as the leader who just shouts out one word instructions and or commands where he's just like, comb, door, food. (laughs) They just repeat the commands. Yeah, they just do what he is bidding. It's great. Very, very Fonz-esque in a way. But that happens at the end of the number because they're they're going up the steps to the front doors of the school and we see the pink ladies go in first and then we see the T-Birds go in. And at the very end, there's just, the music is like about to come to a flourish at an end and there's one last student running towards the front yes, door. Yes, props goes, to him. He goes off to the side and does this jumping dive into one of the open windows on the ground floor. This perfect dive right into the open window. I'm assuming there's probably a small trampoline. Uh, behind still, the even with that, I was impressed. Yeah, It was fantastic. And it's the time to the music perfectly. And then the camera actually pans up. And we had seen throughout this opening production number that the T-Birds, of course, being like the cool kids picking on some of the nerds or the band geeks, if you will. They steal like the the guy's cello player. He's got his cello in the big cello case and they steal his cello case. So at the end, after we see the last school kid jump through the window, camera pans up to the flagpole and we see that they've strung up the cello case in the the string and, and strung it up way, way up the flagpole. And boom, that's the end. It's great. It's fun. It's high school. 
It's yeah, like, you're yeah, hoping. we're we're here. The movie has gotten your hopes up. Totally. Good start. Good call, Bill Bent. It's a great scene. I should have had that. And then the rest of the movie happens. Right. And <laughs> like then the rest. Yeah, basically. <laughs> hey, man, here's something that I liked. Here's a favorite moment of mine is when we see where Michael is residing. I like his bedroom. It's his uncle's fallout shelter, which <laughs> lends itself to some of the topical nature of this movie. That there's some political, they touch on the political climate of the time. This is 1961. So we got JFK. We've got the president uh, dealing with like the Bay of Pigs. So there's a lot of the uh, the Cold War kind of looming in the background and the fear of a Russian attack. But Michael, our English protagonist, I find that's funny too, that he's English and also his like strength is happens to be English. Yes. Isn't that kind of his thing? He's living in his uncle's fallout shelter, which I think would make for a really cool studio apartment. Not much exposure to natural light, but still. And I was thinking, yeah, that'd probably go for about 2500 bucks a month out here in LA. Oh, yeah. Minimum. Just for a studio. The rest I have are just kind of like some tongue-in-cheek favorite moments. If you have another scene or moment, go for it. Let me touch on, did you mention the bunker? Yeah, one of my moments that I did like was touching on the scene with Dolores that Michael realizes he needs to get a motorcycle in order to make him cool, which will hopefully mm-hmm. make him date Stephanie. But now the problem is he has no money for a bike. So what is he going to do? So he comes up with this whole scheme where he actually writes papers for the T-Birds. Mm-hmm. But the T-Birds don't know that Michael's doing it for the other guys. I thought it was kind of ingenious. And, but it was hilarious that it was five bucks a paper. I'm, I'm like, God, I wonder what that is now. What would cost well, to, I had to that write a paper? One of my complaints, too. That he's only charging five? It's a great scheme. Do you know how many papers he would write? have to write to get enough money just to even buy a, a fixer-upper, which he does in the film. Well, I don't know how much a fixer-upper was then. I would think it's probably more than like 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I would think, right? I, yeah. I don't know. I was just like, holy, he's got to write a shit ton of papers to make enough. I did think about give, that. It seemed like, I know you see Goose give him five bucks, I think, for a paper. And the other guys, I don't know if they're giving them five bucks each for each paper they write. Regardless, I don't mean to nitpick. It's a, it is a cool idea. Like he has a good idea. It's a good scheme. I agree with you. Yeah. And we see him writing those papers in that fallout shelter, that little bunker. So that, and then it's a good way too, because then it gets him on the good side of the T birds where they can leave him alone, concoct his scheme and keep them from trying to kick his ass all the time. So I thought it was kind of Correct. good. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Keeps them off his back. Yeah. If anything, it actually kind of ingratiates him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, I just, these are a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I just, this could be a complaint, but I just thought it was really, it was just freaking hilarious. So I put it as one of my favorite moments, is that we do know that Michael actually somehow saves up enough money to go to the bike, like, junkyard and get a fixer-upper, a bike that he can put together and fix up, just something that he can ride. And that will somehow get Stephanie to, to like him because he knows that's the key to her heart. She's looking for a cool rider, uh, somebody to, to sweep her off her feet and to get her on the back of the bike and go cruising. So he gets the bike. We get a little bit of a training montage, I suppose. And it was funny, all I could think of, he's like out in the, like in the park drive, I'm like, oh, hey, it's Steve McQueen and The Great Escape. All of a sudden, 
now we go back to the bowling alley. And uh, was it, I keep forgetting how to say his name. Is it Belmudo of the Cycle Lords, the leader? Is that how you say his name? Oh, the leader of the Cycle Lords? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's because of the B. That's all I remember. Right. Because we know him as Craterface in Greece, but his character's name is Leo Belmudo. And they all just call him Belmudo in this yes. film. So he's shown up at the bowling alley by himself. It seems as though he's just there by himself. And Dolores sees him waiting outside the bowling alley, goes in and warns the T-Birds. The T-Birds come out thinking, oh, we're just going to kick this guy's butt. The head of the snake right here would just take care of him. And of course, the rest of the cycle lords show up and immediately the four T-Birds are outnumbered and all hell's about to break loose when lo and behold, a cool rider shows up disguised in a helmet and ski goggles. Yes. <laughs> on his fancy new new cycle. And he single-handedly defeats the cycle lords by doing almost nothing. Yes, he just drives around in circles. <laughs> it's amazing. I fucking love this scene. He drives in circles. And this is one of my favorite moments, is that he actually drives down the middle of the cycle lord gang and does a spread eagle thing on his bike where he extends his legs as if he's going to kick all of the other bikers off their bikes. or not. He doesn't touch one of them. He doesn't touch any of them. In the next shot, we just see them fall over. Well, that's good, because he would have broke his legs. Yeah, they all just tip over. That's one of my favorite moments. I laughed. I'm like, this is wonderful. It's so bad, it's good. Like, it is so bad. And then it's. I'm just going to go to my next favorite moment, because after all of this... Uh, happens he defeats quote unquote defeats the cycle lords and Belmudo by doing in like magical kicks and whatnot they all just stumble and fall over just because they're in such awe of his presence I guess that then he does this this cool move where uh, after the cycle lords have dispersed because the cops are showing up at this point uh, outside the bowling alley and Stephanie is like, who's that? And she's just like, oh my God. She Her heart's pounding and she's Who's just... that guy? <laughs> oh, who's see? that guy? See, I yeah, guess I remember see these songs. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Oh boy. That's all I remember is their refrains. But yeah, yeah, well. Sorry, I didn't mean to distract you with my, not my amazing not singing. I sing probably just as well as anyone that cast. It's true. <laughs> Stephanie's lighting a cigarette. Uh, the lighter won't work. And who leans in to, to light her cigarette for her? But it's the cool rider. You want to go for a ride? Gets cut short because the cops are coming. And then the squad car pulls up. And what does cool rider do? <laughs> he floors it. And he jumps the police car. He jumps the police car. There's no ramp there. No, I don't know how he does it. Just magically jumps <laughs> the squad car. And I'm going, wait a minute, is there a fantasy element to this? So I guess his bike can fly. I don't know. Something that was maybe on the cutting room floor. But again, this is a little tug in cheek. It was just that I'm putting this in my favorite moments. This is awful and wonderful at the same time. Awesome. So since we're speaking to Michael, I'm going to jump to my kind of scene slash moment. And it comes at the end of the movie, the Luau, just because I liked yeah. That whole setup, and granted, compared to the first movie where they had the carnival, yes, this pales in comparison. But considering my high school life, 
we never had anything this cool. I wrote it down too, man. It's quite the production for the senior class, man. Yeah. It's huge. Giant pool in the middle there, and then oh, all yeah. the tiki torches and the little huts that are all around. And then finally, Michael has the big stunt where he jumps the pool. I was like, okay, that's the first time he actually does something cool on that bike. He's doing some evil Knievel shit. I was like, oh, that's actually a pretty cool jump over the pool. I was impressed with that one because like you, during that bowling out, I was just giggling. I'm like, what? what is he doing? He's just, <laughs> he's just going in circles. Yeah. I was like, he might as well just play some Keystone Cops music while he's just going around. Yeah. Whereas this one, I'm like, okay, he actually does a really cool jump over the pool. And it's funny because Stephanie and Johnny are in the pool because they're the king and queen. But when he does the jump, they're nowhere to be found. So, like, the pool's all of a sudden empty. That's still a cool right. jump. And then, of course, the big reveal. And everyone's shocked that it's Michael, which is hilarious. What? The cool writer is Michael? I thought the, the Luau setup was cool and the jump was cool. So I, I give him props for that. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly with that now i also think you know what there's i think we know that the opening number is great that song i almost can remember and i can see if you'd watch this film a handful of times that one definitely would stick in your head as it has stuck in your head bill especially now with the kids going back to school the song cool rider i could see that maybe sticking in your head but uh you know what i thought prowling I thought that song could have been something. Now, let me quickly say, I'd probably change the name of the song if I were to like do it today. To make something like maybe Cruising or something like that. Yeah. Prowling's a bit aggressive. It's a very aggressive connotation. But I liked this number in the movie where I was just like, yeah, let's see the T-Birds do their thing. They came off as like, yeah, they're kind of these macho guys. And let's just see them be the tough guys that they're supposed to supposedly are. And there's kind of a cool choreography where they transition from dancing in the street and it was kind of like West Side Story-esque a little bit, just kind of doing the, yeah, I thought they were going to all, you know, snapping in unison kind of thing. And, and then it transitions to the stage for the talent show. They're rehearsing the actual number because Prowling is the song that they're going to do in the talent show. So I like that transition. It's kind of smooth. And then all of a sudden... They're on the stage at the high school at Rydell High, continuing to sing the song and perform it. And I think Adrian Zemet, as Nagarelli, is quite good in this. And I agree. How he handles the microphone and the setting is great. It's just the lyrics are awful because they're talking about they're going to find action down at the grocery store because there's a woman that works in the meat department. I'm probably getting some of that wrong. But I'm yeah, I, I couldn't. What the hell is this song about? Because the song is about getting chicks. They're prowling for chicks. Right. And I'm not being PC by even saying that, but I'm we're t- but, we're talking hey, about Chris too. Yeah. I was like, but this could have been, that could have been something. It's no Grease Lightning. No. Because I think the problem with this too is the fact that that's the song they're doing the talent show. The fact that the T-Birds are in the talent show. At least in the first movie... You know, Danny was in the dance thing to try to get money for the car. These guys are just trying to win records. Isn't that the prize? Uh, That's what I was going to ask you, too. The prize is 100 record albums as an LPs. That's the grand prize. And it's a a mixture of different artists. Everything from, what what does Demucci say? Somebody calls it Beethoven? Beethoven? Beetho- What's Beethoven oh. or something? It's Beethoven and 
Tchaikovsky and Chopin mixed with other rock artists. It's a, just a whole, like, hey, everybody throw in your uh, record albums. It'll be the prize for the talent show this year. What a weird prize, like grand prize for the talent show. Right. 100. But like I said, this, this should be beneath the T-Birds. They should not be participating in the talent show unless there's a reason for them to have to win the prize in order to move along the story. Correct. Go back to Greece one. Danny tried to be an athlete to try to impress Sandy. That's why mm-hmm. he did it. There's a reason to do it. Why are the T-Birds participating in the talent show? There's no motivation. Most of the things that happen in this movie do not move the story forward at all. No. Or they just don't serve the story. Here's the talent show. This is where we can highlight all the actors and actresses. Yeah. doesn't work. Did you have any other favorite scenes or moments? No, that's it. I was just going to say again, for me, I guess, you know, my favorite character, I'm just going to tag this on, is just, again, it's just Johnny. Because I thought he was kind of the most interesting, even though that particular number, some of the stuff doesn't serve the story. I just think he was the one that kind of had an arc in a little way. Like, after I had read that, you know, he had performed the role of Danny Zuko in the theatrical production of Greece, which I could totally see, sense. yeah, totally see, good-looking dude who's clearly in shape. He can dance, he can sing, he's got presence, he has real charisma, and he is theatrical, and he's perfect for this type of musical movie adaptation too, where he's very natural when he needs to be, but then he's very showy when he when he needs to be as well. He can do the comedy. I just thought he was great. And I liked the fact that his character, even though he's supposed to be a tough guy, you could tell that he had a soft spot and he knew at certain moments the difference between right and wrong. And even though he is very much chauvinistic, don't get me wrong, he's very chauvinistic as one of the T-Birds in this movie. Paulette stands up to him at the end and he realizes, okay, I need to show a little respect for the ladies. And he kind of comes around. And then at the very end too, when this is where I'm saying at least his character seems to have some kind of arc This whole time he's up, you know, he's against Michael and jealous of Michael because of his relationship with Stephanie, but then turns around and ends up allowing him to join the T-Birds. He gives him one of the leather jackets. I like that character the most. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird because I'm still in that. I think he has the most talent of Mm -hmm. all the performers, but I don't think he has the gravitas to be the leader of the T-Birds. Right. And that's why it was conflicting. It's like I'm listening to him sing. I'm like, yeah, this guy... He can sing, definitely has the voice. He definitely has the moves, but I don't believe that you're the leader of the T-Birds. That the was way it's issue. written is, right, they're not tough guys. They are, what's the word, undermined a bit by the goofiness of Yes, the they're too goofy. Right. They're a little goofy. They are a little goofy. And they're made to be idiots. They're made out to be idiots. Mm-hmm. They're mispronouncing all the words, and that's supposed to be for comic effect. Funny, ha, ha, ha. Goose, especially played by the wonderful Christopher McDonald, is saying the wrong thing at all times. Like he's actually literally mispronouncing things the whole movie. They just didn't have balance for me. That's what it was. They didn't have balance. They're too far on one side. All right. uh, Ready to move on? Let's do it. All right. So let's move on to our Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes. And if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with a complaint department. So Jason, what do you have for Swiss cheese or complaints? Um, Well, for Swiss cheese, meaning like plot holes, this is another scenario. I can't remember this happened before, but my Swiss cheese for Greece 2 is the fact that there really isn't much of a plot. It's just so thin. That's the whole, is the plot. It's the general plot itself. Look, I was watching this movie and I gave it till about after the song, We're Gonna Score in the Bowling Alley. I gave it up until that point. And I was like, okay, 
26 minutes in, and I don't really know what the plot of the movie is, unless it's simply to answer the question, will they or won't they? Meaning, does Michael find a way to join the T-Birds, and will he win over Stephanie? Is that it? That might be it. That's pretty thin. I mean, I'm all for a love story. I am. I love love, but it has to have some levels. I was 37 minutes in, and I still felt like there was no real stakes. There's just this continuing theme. That's the crux of the problem with the movie is there just isn't much of a plot, or at least one worth caring about, or one that makes us really care about the characters. This is a dumb thing to say because it's so obvious, and it just happens all the time in these kinds of movies. uh, Another plot hole is nobody really looks like they're high school age. I think, you know, everybody's too old, except Dolores, Paulette's younger sister. And granted, Pfeiffer is only 23, and I think Maxwell Caulfield was 22 or 23 as well. That's how it was. Yeah, there was one scene when Michael's in the cafeteria, and he's kind of walking through everyone. And he goes to – I think it's right before he starts the charade song. And he sits down, and there's a guy on the right of the screen. That guy looked older than me. I was like, I could have been an extra in this movie. I was like, holy shit. Even my wife laughed. Yeah, he seems a little old. He, he looked like he was in his early 40s. I've got some complaints to issue or file, but uh, I'll let you go. Okay, so the obvious one. All right, we have Michael, his big disguise, the helmet and the goggles. Right. He does not disguise his voice at all. You know, I'm not saying go all Christian Bale Batman. Right. But how many British kids do they know? As soon as they hear his voice, they know it's him. Yeah. He should at least disguise his voice or something. And can you wear a t-shirt under your leather, please? Why is he shirtless? <laughs> Why? Hey, you know, we always say, ah, it was the 80s, which, yeah, technically it was, but I guess it was the 60s. Getting all sweaty. That's Yeah, you gotta wear a shirt under that. That might be some chafing. Oh, definitely. Totally agree. It's that superhero thing. I guess so. With just putting like a piece of material over your eyes and nobody knows who you are. It's the Clark mm-hmm. Kent Superman thing. In that case, it was glasses. But I'm going to get this out of the way real quick. I guess technically it's a complaint. This may have, I don't know if you're going to bring this up in the trivia, but I'm just calling this floppy balls. Oh, yes. We got to definitely get it out of the way. Here. All right. I would have been upset if we missed over this. Right, right. So. This was called out. I can't tell you who was who deserves credit for finding this in the movie, but you can look, you can find it in slow motion on YouTube if you wish. But at approximately 13 minutes and 30 seconds into the film, during the track and field sequence near the beginning of the movie, you see a gentleman hurtling and running the track. And this is right when the two cheerleaders are approaching Michael and trying to recruit him to play the piano for them for the talent show. And uh, you see a gentleman in the background jumping over one of the hurdles and running along the track. And you can see him actually grab for his short shorts because his balls are hanging out. Surprise! Hello! Bing bong! Floppy balls. He just made this movie rated R. (laughs) It is really quick, but it is kind of a fun fact or funny fact about this movie. Uh, because especially when you see it in slow motion on YouTube. Whoops-a-daisy. All right. What's what's your complaint? Or next complaint, I should say. Yes. Sorry, Sid Caesar. I hope the check you got for this movie was well spent. You have a comedy legend in your film, and he has totally wasted it. Why was he even there? 
basically, why was anyone for the first one in this one? They didn't do anything with them besides, hey, look, it's Eugene. Hey, look, it's Frenchie. Hey, look, it's Coach. You just brought it back just to just so you can useless. connect because they were totally useless. Yeah, it's just a fan service thing. You have Eugene in the beginning comes out of the bus and he gets tripped over and he spills all his papers. And then the rest of the movie, he's sitting up in the rafters with a box of snow and leaves. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do anything else. Coach Vince Calhoun. See, it's Caesar. God bless him. He does have the words of wisdom and life advice, though, when the football players are on the field and they're pushing the, what is that thing called? The blocking sled. Thank you. That is what it's called. And he's yelling, like I told you before, football is like life. You got to push. You got to push your way through life. Not quite Pacino's speech from any given Sunday, but we'll do it for Greece too, I guess. Yeah, I agree with you. Just fan service cameos that are completely worthless in the movie. Again, like just be smart about it. Like have them somehow serve the story or be integral in some as a catalyst for something, anything. Yes. Here's a complaint I have, Bill Bant, is that it's 26 minutes into this movie. I'm going to just call out like a timestamps here because I kept looking at things going, when is what? And I just felt like maybe you'll disagree. I don't know that Stephanie, Michelle Pfeiffer, it barely felt like she was the protagonist. I mean, we get that she's one of the, the leader of the pink ladies. She's obviously pretty, but it just didn't feel like she was staying out as a character. Like she wasn't necessarily the number one focus. It felt like throughout the first 20, 30 minutes, it was just more, the focus was more on teenage life, high school life. And it was almost like Johnny and Paulette were getting more screen time. It was really strange to me. I was like, she's definitely one of the main characters, but I'm like, isn't she like the star of this movie? I guess, I don't know if you felt that way at all. I see what you're saying. She's kind of quiet in the first 25 minutes. Yeah, she really doesn't do that much. She just has that like little moment with Michael where she helps him out. And then she kind of has her own intro in the beginning and... Yeah, basically she just argues with Johnny in the beginning, but doesn't do anything else. Just not, she, yeah, I guess she's just not given a lot to do. I think it's hard because it. Michelle Pfeiffer is so noticeable in this movie. I mean, she became so huge. But yeah, if you look at it in a story-wise with Stephanie, what you're saying makes sense. Instead of one of the other musical numbers, give her a number right off the bat about the summer before, meaning like how she broke up with Johnny and how she, like you said, how she's... Now an independent woman looking to find her own way. Yeah, it takes too long to get her established. No, that's a good call. Yeah. And to rearrange some things. Okay. The bunker scene. I mean, this movie is an hour <laughs> and 55 minutes. Yeah, that's, that's a complaint unto itself. Oh, my God. That is the worst. If I ever have to watch this movie again, that's the scene I fast forward. Mm-hmm. It almost reminds me of... Willie Walk in the Chocolate Factory. Before they get to the Chocolate Factory, there's the Here Comes Charlie song that Charlie's mom sings while she's washing clothes. Uh-huh. Willie Walk in the Chocolate Factory is one of my favorite movies of all time. Every time that scene comes on, I fast forward it. I cannot stand it. That's the same here. I'm, I'm like, what is the point of this? This song is horrible. What would have made more sense if we found out that Michael was renting out the bunker to make more money? Yeah, I mean, start from the beginning of the scene. You're absolutely right. He goes into Michael's fallout shelter where michael is sleeping where my that's michael's room while he's right. being in that's why i wasn't even sure like, wait did, how did we know that demucci knows that michael lives there because there's a scene previous where uh we understand that michael is writing the paper for demucci but still we didn't 
know that Michael was allowing him to use his room to score with Sharon, right? Right. That's yes. Or was Demucci just helping himself into the room while Michael wasn't there? We don't know. Yeah, we just don't know. Everything's out of context. It doesn't make sense. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole thing is that he's going to trick Sharon into thinking that World War Three is happening. Mm-hmm. And now they're stuck in this bunker and he's going to have to go fight. And before he goes off to fight, they should have sex. Do it for your country. Yep. Do it for your country. This horrible song. And then she thinks she's going to become a nurse. And she starts wrapping him up in bandages like she's practicing on him. I was like, you could have took the scene out and used that six minutes for something else in the story. It's horrible. It is horrible. I hate that scene. I agree. Flat it out is, hate it. Honestly, Bill, there there was a couple of songs. Yeah. They're not even good singers. It's not like no. you're giving them the spotlight because they sing well. It's a terrible yeah. song. They can't sing. There's no point of the scene. It's just out of place. It's like, how is this pushing the story forward? Because this, like, the movie felt like, when I talk about the plot being thin, it just felt like a slice of life, of teenage life, coming of age high school students dealing with hormones and trying to score. And the guys are trying to hook up with pink ladies. And how are they going to do it? How are they convinced these girls to have sex with them kind of thing? And it's just scenes stitched together to show these kids dealing with being horny. I don't know. It's like, well, like you said, use the six minutes to focus on our protagonists and how they're going to find their way to one another and figure out what their feelings are for one another or how Michael is going to figure out how he's going to reveal his true identity to Stephanie. I don't know. You're right. It's just, it's obnoxious. I was like, what the F is going on right now? Yeah. Why are you spotlighting these two? As soon as they break into song, you're like, what? Wait, they're singing? Why are they singing right now? Yeah, because even in the pecking order of the T-Birds, he's third. He's three of four. Mm-hmm. At least have Goose in there. It's really off-putting. Cut that out. Could have made the movie shorter. Spared us. <laughs> it's a good call. Hey, man, it was a general note for me. This is a big complaint. There always seems to be an element in these musical numbers that takes you out of it. The opening number is great, as we said. But even though nobody's singing the lead vocal, like that's in the actual track. Correct. The soundtrack. The kids that are in the production number are singing like the background vocals. So nobody's actually leading the song. So that is a little strange. We've got uh, We're Gonna Score in the bowling alley. I love the choreography and I get what they're doing here, but it's just hilarious because they're all holding bowling balls that are clearly made of like styrofoam or something. And they just are whipping the bowling balls around. When Pfeiffer is singing her big song, Cool Rider, about her the, her dream guy. It's just as soon as she starts singing, there's that echo reverb effect when she's and she's singing by herself, but there's background vocals involved on the track. And then she is like by herself for a moment, dancing and singing. And then she kind of walks out into the courtyard while she's still singing the song. And it's almost as if it's overproduced and her back is to you as she's singing. And I'd be like, if I was one of the other kids watching her in the courtyard, I'd be like, oh yeah, she's high. Because it's like she's got a song in her head that she's just singing and dancing to. Oh, speaking of music or lack thereof, here's another complaint. Well, to round out that complaint, my point is there's just elements in every song and dance that just kind of took me out of it. It was just something was weird with the production. But 37 minutes in and Michael hasn't even had a song yet. And he's the male lead of this movie, at least sort of next to Johnny, leader of the T-Birds. He didn't even have a song. And then when you get to who's that guy, when he's now the cool rider, 
outside the bowling alley. It's like, all right, here we go. This is 54 minutes into the movie. Michael sings. Oh, wait, he just gets one line. Sorry, Mike. Isn't that a little strange? Well, when he finally does sing, you kind of yeah, understand like, why oh, they've waited this why. long. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Can we talk about another that that song reproduction? Mr. Stewart's song in sex ed class, I take it? Yeah. Oof. That was weird, man. It's not even funny. I mean, it's not even it's not even subtle. It's there's nothing subtle about it. No. It's a little catchy. You did right off the t- was this before we even started recording or was it after when you said, where does the pollen go? Listening to this time, the teacher, Mr. Stu, I'm like, he can't even sing. Oh, he can't sing worth a lick, man. And then that's the problem. All you remember from these songs is like four words. Got to go back to school. But all I remember from reproduction is them just saying reproduction. I couldn't do a verse for you. I'm going to do a verse for you right now. I'm going to read it. Go ahead, please. Reproduction. Reproduction. Put your pollen tube to work. Reproduction. Reproduction. Make my stamen go berserk. Reproduction. I don't think they even know what a pistol is. I got your pistol right here. Where does the pollen go? Those are the lyrics, ladies and gentlemen. Grease 2. Was that Louis St. Louis? I don't know if he was the one. I was looking at the credits. He did write a lot of the songs. I'm not sure if he's credited with the, with the writing on that one. I would take my name off of this. Louis St. Louis. Yeah. Man. Okay, what was the story with the Psycho Lords? Are they a rival school gang? I don't know. Why are they terrorizing the school? I don't know. What the fuck is going on with those guys? To be honest, I'd rather hang out with the Psycho Lords than the T-Birds. They seemed a little bit cooler. They seemed a lot more formidable. Yes. And coordinated. They were the only threat. The only time you felt like there was any sort of risk or threat or high stakes in this movie at all is when they showed up only to be knocked over by the wind. Apparently. Yes. And there's at least 15 of them. I was like, yeah, see T-Birds, this is what you need to do. You need to have a whole crew like this with cooler bikes. They just moved on from cars to bikes. I'm like, Oh yeah. All right. We did, we did cars in the first movie. We'll do motorcycles in this one. I think I, I would have cut out the, your country and, Mm-hmm. Put in more Psycho Lords. Psycho Lords. Just that should just be the name of the of spinoff. They need their own movie. I think so. But the problem is they all look like they were 30 years old. Oh, yeah. They own the neighborhood? Are they a, a school? I didn't understand what their point was, though. Because why, why are you running around picking on kids? I mean, granted, they're all 30-year-old kids. <laughs> exactly. Not much to do in town. Mm-hmm. Where's this supposed to be, by the way? Is it supposed to be California? Where are they? Oh, I don't... I mean, it was shot... We know that Stepping on Trivia was shot in Norwalk, right. California, but at a uh, high school that had been closed. I don't know. They've been saying the first one where this was? I, I'm, I forget where this is supposed to be located. Yeah. Or I, I don't know if it was ever really stated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I had some other complaints regarding some of the music. I, You know, of course, that's just the general overall complaint. I mean, some of the lyrics are just absolutely ridiculous. In the middle of that song, Who's That Guy? There's actually a line. It's almost creative because you're getting the song from all perspectives. You have the T-Birds speak, you know, talking about they're kind of like jealous and pissed off that like, who's this guy kind of stepping in on our turf? You've got the the cycle lords who are kind of chiming in, like, we're going to knock this guy's block off. You've got Stephanie and the pink ladies like, Ooh, ah, who's that guy? Wow. And in the middle of the song, there's an actual line that goes, what would they say if they knew it was Michael? As if there's like an omnipresent narrator 
talking, break, like right. breaking the fourth wall. What are we doing in this song? Who write? What are you writing? What would they say if they knew it was Michael? Well, now everybody knows it's Michael since you just sang it, dummy. Right. Oh, wait, you're just breaking the fourth. I see you did that. That's a line just for the audience. This is so weird. It's so freaking weird. You mentioned poor Michael and his song Charade or Charades. Talking about weird. He can't sing, A. B, he's walking through the cafeteria half the time, staring blankly or supposedly wistfully thinking about Stephanie, but he's not singing. The sing it's the, it's right. the track overlays the scene. It's a freaking musical. He's not literally, he's not singing in the scene. Yeah. The song is playing, but he's not singing. And then he does sing in the middle of it at some point. And then he goes, sits, he goes to sit down and then it cuts from a different angle and he's no longer singing. I don't know what they were thinking through that whole scene. Just have him lip sync or do whatever everybody else is doing during all the other musical numbers. Why is he not singing? Uh-huh. Like the actual actor in the scene. Why? I don't know what's going on. Beats me. Did you have any other complaints? No, I tried to limit in. And some of the stuff we already talked about already, so kind of ran out. My last complaint is just, again, about the Cycle Lords, because they're the only badasses in this movie that aren't badass at all. Because after Michael does his wonderful evil Knievel jump over the pool centerpiece, the luau at the end, there's two more Cycle Lords that try to make the jump. They fall into the pool and are completely defeated, only to be followed up by the Cycle Lords leader, Bel Muda, who accidentally gets shoved into the pool by two girls and he's defeated. That's it. That's it. Yeah. They're probably made out of sugar. That's the climax. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the climax. The bad guy gets shoved into the pool by accident. And once everybody finds out it's Michael, then it's like, oh, that's it. Fight over. The big reveal is that chlorine is uh, Belmuda in the Cycle Lord's kryptonite. Well, it would be for those motorcycles. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. All right, Jason, who do you have for, hey, it's that actor? You know, there's a lot of options in this movie. A lot of options. But I decided to go with Peter Frechette, who played Louis DiMucci, who performed your favorite song in the film, Do It For Your Country. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fallout Shelter. The number three guy in The T-Birds. I just recognized him immediately. He has a little bit of a thinner face, and I don't think he's cross-eyed, but there's times when it looks like he's almost slightly cross-eyed, and that's why I recognized him, just a physical trait. And I was like, okay, I've seen this guy in a bunch of stuff. So I looked up his filmography. Obviously, here he's in Greece to 1982. He was uh, did a couple episodes of The Facts of Life in 1982. He was on an episode of Taxi in 1983. He did a lot of episodes of TV series. He was in Hill Street Blues, Cagney and Lacey, L.A. Law, a couple of films he did. He was in The Hills Have Eyes, Part 2. He was also in The Kindred. But he was in four episodes of 30-something between 1989 and 1991. He played a character named Peter Montefiore. And for that role, for those episodes where he played that character, he was nominated for Outstanding Guest actor in a drama series. He was nominated for a primetime Emmy. And guess who else was in 30-something? That would be uh, Peter Horton. That's what I'm saying. What is happening? What is going on? I know. 
Six Degrees of Peter Horton on this podcast. You got that right. He also then goes on to play the character George Fraley on the show Profiler. He was in 82 episodes of Profiler, 1996 to 2000. And I missed all 82 of them. Yeah, I didn't see many of them. There's a great movie called Inside Man that Denzel Washington. Yes, very good movie. 2006, plays the character Peter Hammond. And last but not least... Peter Frischette and I have something in common. Oh, do tell. Our birthday, October 3rd. Nice. (laughs) My hey, it's that actor's Peter Frischette playing Louis DiMucci. Good call. I did kind of recognize him, but I didn't know from what. So I'm glad you broke that down for us. So my hey, it's that actor is Tom Villard. I called it. You knew I was going to do it? That's the, I wrote it down. I said, I'm calling it. Bill will pick Tom Villard. Go for it, man. Yes. So his Great, call. Credit, Great call. His credit is Boy Greaser. And how do we distinguish him from all the other Boy Greasers in Grease 2? So he was singing in the talent show in the green suit who gets a hold of Miss McGee's pants and won't let go. So that that's Tom Villard. And we love him at the All 80s Movies Podcast because of his role as Clay Stork, one half of the Stork Twins and One Crazy Summer. Uh, (laughs) Love him. Tom's other 80 roles included Surf 2, Weekend Warriors, and Heartbreak Ridge with Eastwood. Um, Unfortunately, um, Tom did pass away early on because of complications of HIV and AIDS, but uh, he will definitely always be remembered as Clay Stork in my book. Love that guy. Yeah. You know, I didn't actually pick him out until my sec- the second viewing. Oh, really? I, it was in the opening production number. I just caught a, a glimpse of him. I'm like, oh, my God, that's the guy. And then I'm watching it the second time, and he's in a lot of scenes, especially then you mentioned the talent show scene, which, to be honest, I have to admit, I didn't know that was him in that scene in the talent show. Because his hair is like slicked back or something, and he looks a little different. Yeah, I think the first time I caught him was during the reproduction. He's in the classroom in there, and you see him really quick. And I was like, holy shit. Yes. Oh, he does have a line in that song, actually, yeah. about throwing up. He's gonna. He thinks he's about to throw up. Yes. In the song, yeah. And then I kept going, oh, it's a stork twin. And my wife was like, <laughs> who are you talking about? That guy. He's great. Who's that guy? Maybe we should change the segment to who's that guy. No, I'm just kidding. It stays hates that actor. All right, so let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia that we have not stepped on already for Grease 2? Hey, man, I got to take a step back. I wanted to give more shout out to a Hey, It's That Actor in this movie just because she's super hot. And I saw her just for, she's in the movie for two seconds, has one line. She's credited either as the girl who missed her last two periods or girl goosed in class. Janet Jones is in this movie. Wayne Gretzky's wife. Oh, Janet I didn't Jones, put that together. Actress. Look, I liked the attractive ladies. And as soon as she comes into the scene, it's kind of a funny play on words there. She's talking to the, I guess she's the principal, right? And she says uh, she's yes. concerned because she's missed her last two periods. And the principal says, oh, don't worry. You can make up those classes later. No, that's not what she's talking about. But I'm like, that girl's gorgeous. Who is she? That's Janet Jones. She's an actress. She kind of works sporadically. But married Wayne Gretzky. Did not pick up on that. I'm extending our Hey, It's That Actor segment. That's okay. All right. Originally titled More Grease, the film was produced by Alan Carr and Robert Stigwood and directed and choreographed by Patricia Birch. Grease co-producer Alan Carr had a deal with Paramount Pictures to be paid $5 million to produce a sequel. 
production beginning within three years of the original film. Carr decided to hire Patricia Birch as a director for the sequel. She previously served as, as the choreographer for the first film. Birch was initially hesitant to accept after learning that neither composers Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey nor John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John would be involved in the film. Should have would have went with her gut. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so we talked about this a little bit, but uh, I'll add a little more. So Grease 2 was filmed entirely on location in Norwalk, California. The main location of film production was Excelsior High School, which was also used in the TV show Square Pegs and recently in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The flagpole in front of the school was added for the movie, so that wasn't originally there. And I, th- and I believe they actually had to widen the front walk also for the film. The school's administrative offices were used for all the production offices during filming. And also the other locations, so the interiors of the Bolorama were shot inside the Hawthorne Bowl, while the exteriors were shot at the Norwalk Ice Rink. Both of those, unfortunately, have been torn down. Bummer. All right. Grease 2 was intended to be the second film and first sequel in a proposed Grease franchise of four films in a television series. The third and fourth films were to take place in the 1960s and during the counterculture era. However, the projects were scrapped due to the underwhelming box office performance of Grease 2. Maxwell Caulfield was unhappy with the film's drab title and unsuccessfully lobbied to change it to Son of Grease. <laughs> yes. Hopefully I'm saying her name right. Uh, Didi Khan? Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah. Who played Frenchie and was one of the few actors from the original Grease movie to come back for the sequel. But oddly, she kind of disappears midway through the movie. So when they started filming the movie, the script wasn't quite finished yet. And when they finally handed in the script, Frenchie wasn't really in there at all. But since they already shot her scenes, they left her in and then she just doesn't appear in the movie anymore. She literally got fired midway through, but kept her in the film. Weird. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. No. Now, take it with a grain of salt, but according to IMDb, Tom Cruise auditioned for the role of Johnny Nugarelli, but director Patricia Birch wanted someone older and taller. Makes sense. Tom's a little guy. That's what they say. Okay. So the cheerleader twins, Stacy and Gracie, from the film, Liz and Jean Segel. Amazingly, the producers didn't plan for the film to include twins. But each sister auditioned without the other one knowing, and both of them landed a role in the movie. Once they realized they had the twins, the producers decided to write them into the script. Jean had auditioned in New York, and Lizzie had auditioned in Los Angeles. Afterwards, I don't remember if you remember the 80s television show Double Trouble. Uh I was a big fan of that one. Only lasted 23 episodes, season and a half. But this was cool because I was trying to figure out because they kind of disappeared after they did like a double mint commercial or something. So Liz later became a writer and executive producer of Sons of Anarchy. Oh, yeah. While Gene was a television director for Two Broke Girls and Two and a Half Men. Damn. How about yeah. That? So that was pretty cool. I was like, wow, they got some really impressive credits there post acting career. That's awesome. Well done. Yeah, I was a big fan of them. Super cute. Yes. Right away, when they came on screen, I'm like, wow, they light up the screen. Yeah. Great smiles. Really pretty. Yeah, yeah. and you can find their Double Trouble show. There's a couple episodes of it on uh, YouTube. I was watching one of them. 
<laughs> I mean, they're okay. Bill doing the deep dive research. I love it. As we know, Michelle Pfeiffer's uh, first major starring role in this particular film. Uh, publicity for the movie described her as a newcomer. This also little go go for it. What did you want? Have to you add ever to that? seen Hollywood Nights though? No, I have not. Oh, okay, I've seen that a couple of times. And that's Hollywood Nights with a K. Hollywood Knights. Yes. So Knights. is that is there there's a like a is it a time travel thing like comedy with medieval flair? No. Or what? It's a comedy. A night out. It would almost be like a night out with the T Birds kind of movie. Oh. Yeah, I used to watch it on HBO all the time. I got gotcha. you. Like the like the Hollywood Knights is the name of a of like a biker gang or something. Yeah, they're kind of a gang. Okay, that's their moniker. That's their yeah title. And I got, I got. It. I think Michelle Pfeiffer plays the girlfriend for one of the one of the knights. Okay, so that would be like technically her feature debut. Yes. So a little more in the casting department. Andy Gibb was initially to play the male lead, but he failed his screen test. Cher initially signed on to play Paulette Rebchuk, but backed out, complaining of a low salary and not having a finished script. Jennifer Beals signed on to play Sharon Cooper, but dropped out to play the lead character in Flashdance. Cher I could not see. I would have liked to have seen Andy Gibb, though. That would have been hilarious. He could sing. That would be a thing, too. He'd probably have way better songs. I mean... Yeah, well, he could probably write the songs. Well, he, yeah, exactly. He would just look at all these songs over. and be like, uh, no, this is what I'm going to write. That would have had an amazing soundtrack. Oh, man. you Can you imagine? God. I love yeah. the Bee Gees, man. Oh, yeah. So catchy. Hell, yeah. All right, anything else for trivia? Uh, let's see if I can find a juicy one to top it off. Okay. We'll just end it with this. The film's screenplay was adapted in the Kannada, which is in South India, feature film entitled Premaloka, starring a couple of people whom, unfortunately, I can't pronounce their names, but it was released in 1987, which went on to become a blockbuster. Yeah, they probably fixed everything. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'd in like to see Yeah, go ahead. No, I'd just like to see that version then. I'm curious. In 2019, it was announced that a prequel to the original film entitled Summer Lovin' with John August attached to write the screenplay was in the works at Paramount. That seems to be the latest news on anything regarding like sequels, prequels. Uh, the film was later adapted into, uh, this is being Grease 2, the film was later adapted into a musical Cool Rider with the script rewritten and modified for the stage. That's it. I've never heard of it, so it must have did really well. <laughs> not to say I'm the... Still, I'm the it's still running on Broadway right now. Get out. No, it's not. I, I, okay, I, I was going to say. I've never heard of it either. Not to say I'm the authority on Broadway, but okay, I lied. It's got one little more tidbit because just make this is just to reinforce Hillary's love for this film too, because there are and also that the fact that men have an attachment to this movie as well. So I didn't want to come off as being kind of I don't know if chauvinistic is the right word, but actor Andrew Garfield listed Grease two as his third favorite movie musical in an interview for Rotten Tomatoes for his own movie musical Tick Tick Boom Boom. There you go. All right, so let us move on to box office. Grease 2 was released on June 11th, 1982, on 1,250 screens, on an estimated budget of $11.5 million. It grossed somewhere between $14.5 million, $15.5 million domestically. Sorry, I saw like 10 different answers of how much it grossed, and the, the lowest yeah. was 14, the highest was 15. So I just somewhere in there. It debuted number five at the box office. And unfortunately, it came out the same week as E.T., the extraterrestrial. 
and we discussed that in an earlier pod, and that movie did quite well in 1982. Grease 2 was out of the top 10 by its third week. So Grease 2 made over $100 million less than its predecessor. And oh, as yeah, you mentioned earlier, crazy. performed so badly that the Grease franchise, what they were thinking about doing, was quickly scrapped at that point. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the early 80s, we would watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of Grease 2 was unanimous. Two thumbs down. Both Roger and Gene agreed that the cast, singing, dancing, and songs of Grease 2 were not up to par with the first film. Roger was disappointed that they essentially rehashed the first movie, but he did give props to Michelle Pfeiffer. Gene liked a little better than Roger and did like the homage to the biker element of the movie. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 35% and it has an IMDb rating of 4.4. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions you might have about Grease 2? You know what? I really like the end credits. <laughs> I did too. I like that yearbook style, the black and white still photos I thought were awesome. I thought they were really cool. Yeah. They really captured like the attitude of these characters. I'm like, where was, like, I saw more within those photos than I did in the actual movie. As far as like character, there were some, some looks that Michelle Pfeiffer and Maxwell Caulfield and Johnny were giving in some of these photos. They just, it has a certain grit to it. And I suppose it's the same style of end credits that, was from the first film. So the general idea of showing like yearbook photos and the writing and stuff, but the black and white photos were cool. And you had brought up early in the podcast, an alternate idea for this movie, just a different storyline, a different framing. Don't call it Grease 2. Don't put it in the Grease universe. Let's have it independent and just keep these, you know, we can keep these actors. Don't make it a musical, but have this story about a boy who's trying to win the affections of this girl. And you have, you can either have class difference or some sort of obstacles because of the gangs and being members of the gangs and trying to be the cool kid, whatever it might be. But I was thinking the same thing when I was seeing these black and white photos. I was like, you could actually make this into kind of a pretty serious drama, almost along the lines of West Side Story, which has a very depressing ending somebody but gets killed but in this film we think that cool rider aka michael has died at one point and the actual t-birds feel bad and stephanie is heartbroken and just distraught and despondent i was like there could be some drama in this story if it was not a musical anyway even if it let's say we're a black and white film altogether about these gangs and groups in this school and the love story in between and again i don't want to totally rip off West Side Story or anything like that. But I thought the photo, I just like the photos in the end credits. Yeah, no, I kind of like that idea. But yeah, I agree with you too. I was more fascinated during the end credits. It's like, oh, these are cool pictures. And I almost wanted to pause and read what they were writing. Right. Maybe someday I'll go back and watch it, see what they say. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had a question for you, Bill Ben. Yes. There's a character called, uh, he's a teacher named Mr. Spears in this movie. He doesn't last very long. On the first day, we know that he's had a mental breakdown from, I guess, the previous year or something. He's had all kinds of mental issues. And then he breaks down again. What do you think had caused his breakdown? Was that from the first movie? Did I forget something? Was he in the first film? Or who's Mr. Spear, that instructor? Like, was he? I don't remember, to be honest. 
Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, then they did that stupid gag with him at the end because then he comes back on the final day at the luau. Right. Good to hear you're much better. And then he straight walks into the pool and right. probably drowns. Yeah. That's not funny. So, okay. So it was just supposed to be for comedic effect. He was just added for comedic effect and it didn't really work. Right. And that, so that made no sense either. Yeah. Why did you need that in there? Why don't you just have Mr. Stewart the whole time as the science teacher? Right. It was a waste of two jokes that were not funny at all. Yeah. See, we've already cut out seven minutes. Let's chop it up, man. All right. So, yeah. First question. Um, have you ever seen Grease perform live? I, I Actually, funny enough, I saw a high school production of it that I absolutely loved. I saw it years ago, I believe, at my very my high school before I attended my high school, <laughs> Antioch High School, Illinois. Oh, cool. Yeah. I think that's the only time I've seen it. I could be wrong. I may have seen one other time. I think that's the only time, though. It's great theatrical production. It's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Have you seen it? Yes. I saw the touring Broadway production in Florida, and I have to confess. So Frankie Avalon was actually part of the cast, and he did Beauty School Dropout. Now, when I watched Grease, to me, Beauty School Dropout is the worst part of the movie. But watching it in the musical was the best part of it. And then after the show was over, he actually came back out and did an encore and did a couple of additional songs. It was really cool. Wow. Yeah. That became like the highlight. Now, now I actually like the song when I see Cause I always just feel like that scene takes you out of the movie because then it gets, you know, the whole fantasy element of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I never really liked it, but seeing it in the theater, it just works so much better. And then I really liked learned to appreciate it. And then the fact that they actually had Frankie Avalon doing it was really cool. That's always a fond memory of, of mine. That's great. That's cool. You got to see that. Yeah. I, my question about this movie is, do you think if they had just cut the songs either in half or had no songs at all, what kind of movie would it be? Do you think this movie would be better? Yeah, I do. I almost thought about watching it the second time, like just fast forwarding right through the, Songs and see what effect it would have on me. Yeah, outside of the opening song. Yeah, and the closing song's okay, but it's kind of it almost sound it's almost kind of like a downer song. Oh yeah, well, I had an issue with the yeah, just the beat like of songs too. Like even who's that guy during that song? It's such a slow song. I'm yeah. like, this needs this is an action sequence, guys. Let's pick it up. Let's pick up the pace of the song. You're right. It wasn't that final song is a little bit of a downer. Yeah, that should have just played over the credits itself and had a different song at the Luau. Like the first Luau was catchy, but mm-hmm. not memorable. But then you cut into that song and it's like, uh, yeah, save that for the credits. Yeah. All right, Jason, are you a good bowler or do you even bowl? Or even, when's the last time you went bowling? Uh, it wasn't that long ago. I'd say less than two years ago, maybe two years. Well, so I guess it has been a while. Two years ago. I am not a good bowler. I enjoy it, but then I get impatient. I My technique, I can make it look good, but I have a problem correcting my role or release of the ball because I will, I'll get a few strikes, but I can't, I'm not consistent. Let's just put it that way. I'm just not a consistent bowler. And then I get pissed and I almost have more fun just enjoying the social experience and, and, uh, joking around with other people. I enjoy the, I enjoy it, but I am not good. I'm just inconsistent. How about you, Bill? I like to bowl. Haven't gone bowling in a while. I'm not a good bowler. I am 
probably a little below average. Like if I bowl three games, my second game is always my best score because by okay. the second game I get in the groove, but then the third game my arm gets too tired. So then I'm horrible then. Yeah, we used to go bowling a lot in Florida. We'd go, it was the midnight bowl. So you'd go literally at midnight and it was half price or it's all you can bowl for two sure. hours. Yeah, we used to go like every week and I never got any better because I don't know how to put the curve on the ball. I'm just a straight bowler. So if I don't have that technique right where I can bowl it directly straight between like the head pin and the, you know, one of the, the two, three pins, then forget it. And then, yeah, probably the last time I went bowling was I took my kids during spring break. And this is, of course, pre-pandemic. Yeah. They went, they had the bumpers and then they even had the little ramps where you could put the ball on the ramp and you just push it down. You know, yeah, they don't really do anything besides push it, but they had a good time and yeah, I'd like to go back. I'm just still, still nervous about doing indoor things. So I hear you. Yeah. Good times. I always enjoy going. There's a certain energy about bowling alleys. I don't know. It's kind of mm-hmm. fun. You get some good music going in the background and it's a good social experience. You It can be a lot of laughs with friends if you just, you can't take yourself seriously unless you're in a league. Yeah, my dad was a pretty good bowler, and I know he would take me a couple of times. And it, there's always that too. Yeah, that opening of the doors and just smelling all that smoke, that smoke smell. Man, I just sure. remember that ugly carpet. It'd be like a purplish with all the triangles or whatever. And then you just mm-hmm. sit there, kind of watch, and then I maybe would get like two or three minutes after his games are over that I could roll the ball down. That's great. Here's a question, very simple. Okay. Do you have a favorite movie musical? I can throw out a lot of options, old and new. Yeah, throw out a couple. Because, of course, I'm thinking Willy Walk of the Chocolate Factory, but I don't know if that's sure. really okay. a musical. I think it might fall under that category. Some of these are kind of in that same vein. So we have The Sound of Music, The Wizard of Oz, okay. more recent times, La La Land. Okay. Phantom of the Opera was made into a movie. Yeah. Mary Poppins. Okay. I've got a list here that puts the 1954 version of A Star is Born on there. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof. There's an American in Paris. Uh, I'm sure Ooh, you've you got uh, Go For It. Singing in the Rain. That I was just going to say. That was my next one, actually. Singing in the Rain. Yeah. And I have to admit, I did see... It took me a long time to finally see um, The Sound of Music. Oh, yeah. I remember it used to be on TV all the time. And I would just see that opening scene. And I would kind of run because I was like, I don't want to watch this. And I saw it at the Hollywood Bowl with the sing-along. I had a blast. I'm sure. I got sold on that one. I thought for sure it was going to be a miserable experience, but my wife really wanted to go. And I had a really good time. It was the Sound of Music sing-along at the Hollywood Bowl? Yeah, they do it every year in September. That's awesome. And people really get into it. And I thought for sure, I was like, oh, I don't want to hear people singing along. I just want to watch the movie. Yeah. I was hooked. I was like, oh, this is a lot of fun. I would actually go and do it again. That's great. Anything at the Hollywood Bowl is just freaking magical. So, How about the Blues Brothers? <laughs> oh, that's true. Uh, I know. It's one of your favorites. Yeah. There's Jersey Boys. There's Moulin Rouge. There's Guys and Dolls. I mean, you can go there. I, there's so many. So many. I am partial to the music, man. Little Robert Preston, man. I've never seen that whole thing. Chicago. It's a great one. I, you know, as a kid, one that I was a huge fan of, Camelot. Oh, okay. Camelot. Although I have to admit, I think it wasn't, I don't know if this would technically be the movie musical. It was, it was like a taped uh, theatrical production. It's kind of like, would Hamilton count? No, that would count. I would count it. Why not? 
All right. Uh, last question. All right. Have you ever ridden a motorcycle? Have you ever tried to be a cool rider, Jason? <laughs> I have never driven a motorcycle. I have been on a motorcycle, though. Okay. Have Have you ever driven one? I used to have a motorcycle license. Oh, no shit. Yeah. When I was in Florida. And I, I didn't renew it when I came out here because I figured if I ever tried to drive a motorcycle out here, I'd probably be dead. Yeah. I mean, it's not even safe in Florida because it rains all the time. That's one of the things they always tell you is do not ride a motorcycle in the rain. Well, did you have your own bike in Florida then? Uh, we had a partnership with Harley. So I had access to bikes. Sweet. Yeah. Through work, huh? Yeah. So I had this really cool tricked out Dolphins bike. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I'm learning more about you every day, every podcast. Um, so any addis- other additional thoughts or questions? That's it for me, Bill Bant. All right. So let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five cool riders, what do you give Greece <laughs> two? I am giving this 2.5. 2.5 cool riders. Is a 0.5 for Hillary? That's it, Ben. <laughs> Is that why you're just you're trying to suck up? You know, I, I will say this once again. I did have fun watching it. It got a little long in the tooth towards the end. This is a two-hour movie that is. I know. I couldn't believe that. It's not supposed to be. It's just not. So just past the one-hour mark, when a couple of the songs literally was like, "What? What is this? What? Why is this song here?" I was getting a little frustrated, but then the moments in between got me. There's some cleverness, like I said. There's some witty dialogue that was fun, and I just took it for what it was. I didn't take it too seriously. I wanted to have fun with it, so I went with it. And then, uh, yeah, then it was over. So this is not one I'll return to soon, but I think I have a better appreciation for it and some of the fans' attachment to it. Okay. Yeah, for me, it's uh, two cool riders and... One of the writers goes to the opening number, just because I said, I, right. that song always sticks in my head every time fall happens and I talk about the kids going back to school. So that, that stuck with me. So he deserves a star for that. And Michelle Pfeiffer, two cool writers there. Love it. Well said. I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review and rate us. Those subscribes and reviews really help us to continue producing the show. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you wish us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta, at all80smoviespodcast, or tweet us at podcasthall80s. Next week, we will conclude our special back-to-back-to-school mini-series with Back to School. Starring Ronnie Dangerfield, Sally Kellerman, and Keith Gordon. We hope you join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone. Bill, we're going to die and I'm wearing my mother's underwear. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.